I'd love for you to take the word of God and turn to Matthew chapter 24 with me this morning. Matthew chapter number 24. We'll read the text and then go to the Lord here in just a moment in prayer. That He would bless the reading of His word and the preaching of His word and encourage you to pray along with me. This is somewhat of a um, heavier sermon, so in part I want to apologize for those visiting with us, but uh, in part not, is because it is the Word of God. Um, but at the same time, I uh, pray that the Lord will help me to measure it out appropriately, be faithful to the text, but at the same time not um, exasperate or weary you um, with so much content or data. I know that I've probably done that before. And with a topic like this, there's a tendency to, to do that, and particularly whenever I take a position that is not the popular position. Um, there's often a, I feel a need to probably overcompensate because I want to be faithful and I want to in some way persuade you. Um, but at the same time, we need to continue to recognize that when we talk about things like today, um, that these are not essential matters. They're important nonetheless. But the essential part is that um, we heed God's word and the ethical commands. And that when prophecy is given, it is given um, to encourage us to be faithful. So whether you take um, a position on this that differs from mine today or not, um, we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. We can still be unified around the gospel. And we can still uh, reach the nations for the cause of Christ and all desire to stand faithful on that great day when we stand uh, before Him. So this is not an essential hill um, to die on. But nevertheless, it's important and thus we pursue it. God gave it. And um, we want to desire, we desire to know um, what He would have for us as a result um, of this text. So you pray for me and um, we'll go to prayer in just a moment. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. Um, and you may be wondering why the book of Matthew? Um, because we've been studying through the book of Mark. Um, well, this count of Matthew is the parallel account in Mark 13 where we've been. And for those of you that are visiting, and we've taken it as our task, we're somewhat a little different than maybe other churches. Uh, and we just, uh, we've, we've taken as our task the Word of God verse by verse, particularly the book of Mark, and we find ourselves in this text this morning. Um, it's not a hobby horse, it's not a, a soapbox. Um, it's simply, we pick up where we left off from last week. And, receive, and desire to receive the entire counsel of God. So we take up our reading in verse 15 and we'll read through verse 28. We'll go to the Lord in prayer. Um, God's Word. In God's Word you read this, Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For a false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if, any po if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if any 
if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, um, we come to You, I pray, with the utmost love. In some capacity, Father, um, through the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit, even obeying that great command that we would love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. Father, that's our goal this morning. As we worship You, that's what we desire. And to love the people, Father, to love one another, our neighbor, even as ourselves. Because we recognize that this was Christ's great work and our great reward. Um, that we love Him because He first loved us and that we have the ability to love simply because He is loved. So, Father, we praise You for the opportunity this morning to love You and to love one another. And I pray that that would even happen, Father, in this moment. Father, I pray that as the Word of God is uh, proclaimed and declared that You would help me be faithful, that You would hide me behind Christ, Father, that You would help me to measure out um, what we have before us appropriately and faithfully, and that You'll take it, Father, to the very depths of our souls, and that You'll do an eternal work, Father, that we can. We come this morning, Father, as weak, not only as weak, but as totally unable, um, resting wholly in the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit, trusting the plan of the Father. So, Father, recognizing that if anything is accomplished, it will be simply because You have accomplished it in and through us. So, Father, would You use us as vessels of glory this morning um, to, to um, propagate Your work and um, whatever that may be, Father, in the souls of those of You. If it's a sinner that needs to be saved, Father, we beg You to do that this morning. And if it's a saint that's discouraged, Father, we pray that You'll encourage them. Um, nevertheless, we pray that we'll all be built up this morning, Father, for the cause of Christ and be stronger and more faithful, Father, as a, as a result of the work that you've given us to do, Father, and the word that was proclaimed this morning. It's in Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Again, we return to the portion of Scripture that we've been spending um, quite a bit of time in, uh, particularly in the book of Mark. And just to bring you up to speed, if you've not been with us, um, as I said, we've taken Mark as a whole, and thus we approach this text. Again, Matthew, I take Matthew's account because I see it as, out of all of the accounts of this portion of Scripture, it seems to be the most extensive um, account. So given the context and the text at hand, it seems most wise um, to preach the account from Matthews and bring Mark and Luke in whenever necessary. Um, just to bring you up to speed, I take an unpopular position on this, at least not the most um, common among evangelical Christianity, and that is, is that the primary fulfillment of this passage I find um, to be um, in the uh, period immediately after our Lord's uh, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension from 33 A.D., and finds its culmination in 66 to 70 AD in the siege of Jerusalem by Rome, which finally culminates um, in the destruction of the temple, formalizing the um, the burial of the old covenant, if you will, or the dissolving of the old covenant and the establishing of of the new. Um, and we we looked at Matthew, we looked at Mark, we've looked at Luke, we've looked at the Gospels. And what you find throughout the book of Matthew particularly, as well as Mark, is this growing hostility between Christ and 
uh, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is God's old covenant people. And within that old covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26 particularly, as well as many other places, what you find are the covenant conditions. Um, you find I will statements and you should statements, or you obey this command and if you don't, um, then these are the things that will happen. Upon Israel's disobedience and continual disobedience, what you find is that God promises His judgment and His wrath. Um, for centuries now in the nation of Israel, when we come to the book of Matthew or Mark or Luke, uh, the New Testament times, what you find is a nation that is largely represented um, by its leadership as well as its people who have been in long-term rebellion against the covenant that God had made with them. Growing hostility between the Jews and Christ, but also growing hostility between Israel and Rome. And when you come to Matthew chapter 21, particularly through Matthew chapter 25, you find statement after statement and parable after parable of the coming destruction because of their disobedience. Um, it somewhat culminates in Matthew chapter number 23 uh, when you read these words. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. This is verse 37. And stones those who are sent to her. How often I, w I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That entire previous chapter in Matthew chapter 23 um, is, is, is condemnation after condemnation pronounced upon the nation of Israel. Seven woes. And that's what you see prophesied in Leviticus chapter number 26. And you see much of the judgment that is pronounced upon them iterated and reiterated by our Lord Himself. Parable after parable, particularly in, in uh, chapter number 21, of the nation of Israel and upon their disobedience that they would receive the judgment because of the, because of the broken covenant um, that they have with God. Um, and I take chapter number 24 to carry on the theme that in verse number 35 or 38 particularly, he says, your house is left to you desolate. What house? The house of God that would have been the temple um, that was established there in Jerusalem. It would have been that temple that was ordained by God, that, that, that meeting place, that dwelling place of God where His presence would be made known and manifest. And upon their covenant disobedience, God would have abandoned the house according to 1 Kings and other prophecies of the Old Testament according to His promises. And that's exactly what you see in Matthew chapter 24. Our Lord Jesus leaves the temple his last self, uh, by Himself for the last time until His death. And He proceeds to the Mount of Olives where He now gives a private sermon to His disciples. As He goes out there, He's just prophesied that the house would be left to them desolate. What do the disciples do? The disciples I'm asking them a question. Or they point back and they're like, well, look at it. It's amazing. Like how in the world that the ideal could, could very well be is he just pronounced that the temple would be destroyed and they, they look back and see, look at it in all of its glory. Like how could that even be? Jesus prophesies in Matthew 24 and verse number 2, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Thus they ask Him a question in verse number 3. Tell us when, when will these things be? Um, it's my argument, my contention that these things are the things that were just asked. When will the temple be destroyed? Um, which would have been earth-shattering to the nation of Israel. Um, and then there's two other questions that are asked, possibly one. It may all be the same question. Um, what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the end of the age? Uh, I don't think in their mind and thinking that all of those things would have been separated. Um, I believe that the nation of Israel would have understood that the end of the world, um, the temple would have stood until then. 
I don't believe that they understood the second coming of Christ. I don't think that that's necessarily what they're asking. They didn't even understand, according to Jesus' own words, um, that the, His death. They didn't believe that He was going to die um, until after He had died and was resurrected and ascended upon a high. Um, I believe that what they're asking is, um, is when will the end of the world um, be? And Jesus is going to give them that answer um, in some sense. But He's going to answer them in, in different parts is what I'm going to argue, and some will have contention with this as well. Um, but initially, in verses uh, 3 through verse number 28 at least, or 35, I'm going to argue that, um, that He's speaking about these things, when the temple will be destroyed and final judgment will culminate. And I'm arguing that for a number of reasons. So I'll summarize it like this. It seems like the context to the predictions of God's wrath is on that generation that he's speaking to Israel in Matthew chapter 23. It seems like, number two, that the question posed by the disciples pertains to the temple that's still standing, not to a future temple that will be rebuilt. Number three, it seems like Jesus answers, uh, again, uh, pertaining to a, a temple that is then standing, of which Jerusalem and that generation would have known. Number four, the circumstances we'll see are geographically, historically, and culturally limited um, to that century. It's specific to that time. Number five, the entire section's grammatical structure is couched in terms of those that are listening, um, that, that, that you will see, that you will hear, that you will experience, speaking to the disciples, speaking to the Pharisees at times. We see it repeated in you and you all. You will hear, you will be hated, you will be put to death when you see the abomination of desolation. And then also Jesus applies the entire scenario in verse 36 to this generation. Or verse number 34, sorry. This generation. All these things will come upon this generation. The phrase is used multiple times in the book of Matthew, and every single other time there is no dispute among people who disagree on this passage. That every other instance of this generation refers to the Jews living during that time. It doesn't necessarily mean that, it, that, that this one couldn't be different, but I find no reason to believe that it's any different and consistent with all the other um, ideas or all the other uses in Matthew. The Greek language has... Um, uniquely, just like the English language, both near and far demonstrative pronouns. What in the world does that mean? It means like this, the words like this and that. Uh, new homeschool people could have answered that, right? The kids would have known that. He could have used that generation, or he could have used that temple, speaking of a future generation, or speaking of a future temple, but he did not. And later he does use the demonstrative pronouns that. But now he doesn't. He speaks of this generation. He talks of this temple. And thus I'm convinced that what we have seen here um, are, are, are events that are surrounding primarily um, the nation of Israel in the first century. Now, could it have further fulfillment? We could argue that. Could there be double fulfillment and something happening later at the end of the age? Is there a pattern or a paradigm set in this portion of Scripture that could be speaking of something at the very end of the world in time-space continuum? Sure. I don't have any great authority to say that, upon, upon, uh, say that though, because I don't have apostolic or, or Christ authority um, according to the Word of God to say that that is true. But at the end of the day, if I'm rapture, if, I, if I'm, I'm caught up in the air and my theology is wrong, I'll be happy to repent of that at the end of, of the age. But right now, I'm convinced that this is primarily fulfilled in that first century of, of disciples. Um, and that's what we saw. And that's what we've reviewed. We've reviewed that, 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 that first generation, and a biblical generation would have been somewhat 40 years. From the time of 33 A.D. to 70 A.D., it would have been 37 years within that biblical um, generation. 
And what we've looked at over the past weeks has been that first portion of verses 4 through 14. Um, those, those immediate, those, those, those somewhat of uh, general things that must happen, but he argues, don't worry. Don't be taken back. Don't fear. Persevere. Persecution's going to come, and there's going to be things that characterize um, the time in which you're living in, and when these things come, don't be surprised. But it is not the end yet. And then in verse number 15, we see a change. That, that now we have a definitive sign in which we can argue um, the end is near. So for, verses 4-14 through 14 of Matthew, there's your general things that must happen. The end is not yet, he says. These are the beginning of birth pains. And that's what we saw. That in the, the first century, between 33 A.D. and 66-70 to 70 A.D., is this influx in a lack of peace, wars and rumors of wars, persecution at a height that, that the world had not seen for decades and maybe centuries up to that point. There was a relative peace in Rome um, as, they, as they put the entirety of the world underneath their thumb. Um, there wasn't wars. There wasn't war rumors of wars. There was relative peace. And what we saw uh, historically, according to um, uh, historical writers, is this influx in all of those things, which will culminate in total hostility between, uh, between the Jewish people and Rome. And that's what we found in 66 AD, um, that there was a, a, a break in the peace that there was a revolt by the Jewish people um, against Rome um, to come out of their, under their authority. They took back Jerusalem and it sent Rome on this hiatus uh, for three and a half years to take Jerusalem and to take Israel by force. And they did it in many ways. And that's what we um, are reading here in this portion. And let me just say, it's going to be a lot of data. It's going to be somewhat of a lot of content. Um, but I would, I, would, I would beg you not to divorce your mind this morning from actually historically what happened because it is going to be a necessity essential for that gravity and weight to hit us this morning to understand um, the implications of this text. So, so the general signs are over. We're, we're approaching 66 A.D., um, that's after the time of Christ. Jesus has, has died. He's been buried. He rose again. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of God the Father. The New Testament church is being established. Uh, the proclamation of the gospel is going forth. The church is being persecuted like it's never been before under, under, uh, under Rome's authority by Nero. Um, they're, they're being burned at the stakes. They're being used to light cities. Um, and then we see this, this definitive sign that the end is near. Jesus says in verse number 15, don't worry prior to this, but when you see this, flee for the countryside. What's the definitive sign? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Let those, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Strange term, isn't it? Abomination of desolation. It wouldn't have been strange to the Hebrews though. It's interesting, if you were to go to the book of Luke and you were to read Luke's account, um, and I may encourage you to jump over there for just a second, Luke's account of this doesn't refer to it as the abomination of desolation, but he refers to it in verse number 20 as this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
I mean, you may ask why, and it may be because Luke is not writing to a Jewish audience. How do you know that? Because he tells us who he's writing to. A man by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus is a Greek man. So so, so Luke doesn't use the same terminology that would be understood um, by Jewish people who would have been very well versed in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, and they would have known exactly what that term meant. Not only would they have known that that term meant biblically, they would have also known what that term meant historically. So, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So what does it mean? An abomination is an abominable, detestable, offensive thing. A profanation, particularly um, of the worship of God. You read the Old Testament and you find that it's, it's particularly used of pagans. But even more than that, um, it, it, and with more gravity, it's used... Um, of the Israelites. In Ezekiel 5 through chapters number 9, you find it used over and over again to refer to the temple of God and how they've profaned um, the very worship of God within um, the temple. So when we speak of an abomination, we speak of something that offends God in worship. It's the offense of God in worship. It is to abort His commands and to worship God however we desire, whether we are Christian or even um, pagan. The use of this term would have 100%, no doubt in my mind, caused the disciples' ears to perk up. It could have actually been translated faithfully, the abomination which caused or is the source of desolation. So this abomination would have been the source of the desolation, the destruction. Um, You say, why would their ears have perked up? Because Daniel uses this very phrase four times. In Daniel 8.13, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11. Without a doubt, um, commentators, Christians throughout the ages have believed, it doesn't matter what you believe about the end times, across the board, whether you're MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, any other man that's faithful, um, or even unfaithful, all agree that this, that three, at least three out of four of these references actually deal with a historical figure um, around 160 A.D. by the, by the name of a man, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a ruler of a Syrian kingdom, who came to Jerusalem. He named himself Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. And he had not only had his goal to bring down Jewish resistance, but also to stamp out the Jewish religion altogether. Thus, um, he with the Syrian army slaughters 40,000 Jews and plunders the temple. He sacrifices a pig on the altar of burnt offering and sprinkled broth from unclean flesh all over the holy grounds as an act of deliberate and utter defilement of God. He then erects an image of Zeus at the altar. and It was a sacrilege, indescribable proportion, forever imprinted on the minds of the Jews. It would seem that Jesus prophesied um, here of a repeat of performance. That when Matthew writes, let the reader understand, many today... And you read that passage, right? In verse number 15, whoever reads, let him understand. Uh, Many commentators or Christians today believe that that's Matthew inserting um, something for the reader of the gospel. Um, And and the reason that I know that is because if you have a red letter edition, look at verse 15. That part is most often black, meaning that they don't perceive this as Jesus' actual words. I'm convinced that this is actually Jesus' words, that this should be red letter as well. That whenever he refers to the reader, he's saying let the reader of Daniel understand. He's saying that he who reads Daniel, let him understand concerning the abomination of desolation. Why? Because it's used in Daniel four different times. Um, 
to pick back up on Antiochus Epiphanes, he turns the priest's rooms and the temple chambers into public brothels. Um, in 168 BC, the temple was dedicated to Zeus again. Um, he, he follows from that and establishes a law that prohibits Jewish worship altogether. He prohibits the circumcision. He prohibits um, uh, temple sacrifice. He stops everything. And he, and he puts it into law that anyone who steps over the boundaries of this law um, would be put to death. So mothers who circumcised their children were put to death. Um, those who sought to worship God according to the Old Covenant were put to death, up to uh, 40,000. Um, this was a, out of the three out of the four of Daniel, we're uh, convinced that speaks of this man historically entering in, murdering 40,000 Jews, and um, defiling or profaning the temple, offending God in the temple on a hundred counts, probably a hundredfold. One writer writes, the bloodthirsty tyrant executed his threats of death upon all who opposed his will. Men, women, and children were ruthlessly slaughtered. Whole families were extirpated and guilt of one, uh, for the guilt of one of their number. The chosen people were on one point of being annihilated in the promises and hopes of the covenant of being annulled forever. Now under Epiphanes was attempted what had never been proposed by Babylonian conqueror or Persian friends, the entire destruction of, the, of, of this religion at one fail blow. There's a book called the Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees. I mean, it's not in our canon of Scripture, but it's a historical document in that period of time between uh, Malachi and Matthew. And, it's, and what you find is the report of all this. If you want to read about it, go to 1 Maccabees chapter 1. And what you'll read are things like this. Verse 21, "...and he entered proudly into the sanctuary and took away the golden altar and the candlestick of light and the vessels thereof." This would have been a profanation or an offense altogether. Gentiles were not to enter into the place. Um, there's actually a riot in Acts that almost breaks out because they accused Paul of bringing Gentiles into the Holy of Holies where God made Himself known. Um, but 1 Maccabees 1.54 says, Now the fifteenth day of the month, in the hundred and forty or forty and fifth year, they set up an abomination of desolation upon the altar and builded idols and altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side upon the altar of God. That this is what you see a primary fulfillment of this portion of Scripture in Daniel found in 168 years, almost 200 years prior to the time of Christ and even to this, this event. And what I believe Jesus is doing here is He's saying that a pattern was set of old, that it was primarily fulfilled, and that when you, that you need to know that this type of thing is coming again. I may even argue that in uh, Daniel chapter number 9 it is actually referencing this very um, event. One writer writes in Daniel 12.11, the references to the heathen altar set up by Antiochus Epiphanes over the altar of the burnt offering is generally agreed. Jesus uses the phrase uh, to imply that for him, the meaning of the prophecy was not exhausted by that simple event in Maccabean times. It still has a future reference. The temple of God must yet suffer, suffer a fearful profanation by which its glory um, will perish. And, and most people believe this, whether you say it was 70 A.D. or maybe you think it's still yet to be in the future. If there is a profaning of the temple that will still come, I believe Jesus is arguing that it was in 70 A.D. So what is the abomination of desolation? There's some argument over it. Some believe that it's the zealots. 
that group of zealous uh, Jews within the nation of Israel that immediately when the war broke out, they took the temple mount and all sorts of profanations happened within the temple. I mean, blood was spilt in the Holy of Holies um, and it was turned into a murderous den, um, commentators and history writers tell us. Um, there's other arguments. It was a group called the Idumeans, the Edomites, who did something similar. I mean, some argue it was the Jewish leaders. Again, Ezekiel chapter 5 says that they were an abomination um, and that within the temple because of the practice that they had um, done. I'm going to argue this morning that it was actually uh, the Roman legion led by Titus or Vespasian um, in the armies of Rome. That while the city of Jerusalem was still burning, the soldiers brought their legionary standards or emblems into the temple precincts, offered sacrifices there, declaring Titus and Rome to be the victor. The idea of images of Caesar being branded upon the temple would have been a great offense to the Jewish people. And the episode that is, is, it is the episode in history that is the closest to Antiochus Epiphanes. And it would have been a great offense just to put the eagle over the Holy of Holies. There's, there's some people that actually write according to the Jews that, that, that this thing almost happened other times with Herod, with, with Agrippa, with uh, Caesar Caligula. And, and what the Jews cried out in those moments was, let us die, let our wives die, let our children die before um, anyone puts an image um, upon uh, the imageless God in our temple. That they would have went to death fighting over that. And that's exactly what you see in Luke's Gospel, right? What do we just read in Luke chapter number 20, 21? In verse number 20. That this is the parallel account. And you read in Matthew, right? That, um, that therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down. What do you see in verse number 20 of Luke? But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It's the same language. Yet, he doesn't include the term abomination, but he says the armies will be the source of desolation. That when the armies are gathered around, um, know that the desolation is near and that you, um, at that moment, need to flee. You, at that moment, um, must flee. The desolation is to take place in the holy place. Um, I actually believe that that may be a reference not only to the holy place within the temple, but in the land of Israel um, altogether. That oftentimes in the Old Testament, as well as in, in the historical writings, you refer to um, the, the nation of Israel or even the Jerusalem as the holy city or the holy land or even that holy place. Um, that the holy place could be speaking of the temple being profaned and probably is. But in some sense, too, gathering around the land and, and fortifying it in to totally destroy it um, would have been stepping upon a holy place, um, which is the land of Israel. So you see this, um, this distinct sign. These general signs, wars and rumors of wars and all of this, when these things happen, don't be afraid. He's talking to the disciples and to the Christians. Do not worry. Do not fear. Persevere. When Nero comes and he brings down persecution, know that the end is not yet. But when you see this thing, then run to the hills for safety. When you see the abomination of desolation or the armies, which is the source of desolation, um, surround the city. Um, and I believe it's actually... Uh, then, then run. And this is actually prophesied as well in Luke chapter number 19, just a couple of chapters before 
um, with probably more explicit um, type uh, language. Verse number 43. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your uh, visitation. That you see this distinct sign that also comes with a dire command. If you're taking notes, a distinct sign with a dire command. What's the command? Flee to the mountains. Church, flee. Flee to the mountains. It was like Lot in the Old Testament. Escape. Don't look back. Run for the hills. That the disciples are not to stay and fight for the physical salvation of Jerusalem. Jesus, one writer writes, Jesus will die at the hand of Rome on the charge of being a Jewish rebel, but the Christians are not to do so. They are not to waste time. They are to run away. That Christians would receive persecution from both Israel and Rome, but they were not to die the death of the nation of Israel because of their disobedience. The tribulation that would fall upon Jerusalem uh, because of their utter rebellion and, and, and broken covenant um, would not be um, the wrath that the Christians um, received. So run to the mountains. Um, the, the, the Jewish and Roman historian Josephus tells us how that when Rome's army first came against Jerusalem, it was led by a man by the name of Cecetus. Um, it's very interesting. Um, as he and others record that, um, as they gather around him in 66 AD, something happens within the camp that nobody knows. Um, Josephus actually says, had they attacked um, Judea, Jerusalem at that time, they would have taken it without a problem. But something happens within the company such that they turn and they run away, giving the Christians time to get out. And that's exactly what we see in history. Um, one writer writes, it's a remarkable but historical fact that Cestus Gallus, the Roman general, for some unknown reason, retired when they first marched against the city suspended the siege, ceased the attack, and withdrew his armies for an interval of time after the Romans had occupied the temple, thus giving every believing Jew the opportunity to obey the Lord's command to flee the city. Josephus, the eyewitness, himself an unbeliever, chronicles this fact and has admitted his inability to account for the cessation of the fighting at this time after the siege had begun. Can we account for it, he says? We can the Lord fighting against Jerusalem. Zechariah 14.2 says, For I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. The Lord was besieging the city. God was bringing these people, these, these things to pass against Jewish state and nation. Therefore, the opportunity was offered for the disciples to escape the siege as Jesus had forewarned and the disciples took it. So Daniel said, so Jesus said, so Luke said, so Josephus said. That, the, that, that, that what happened was is that they begin to siege upon Rome. God, in some sense, providentially secures um, the, the salvation of His people by, by restraining the armies such that they can um, leave. And that's exactly what you find in so many accounts. Um, there's a man by the name of Eusebius who's an early Christian historian who says this, he says, furthermore, the members of the Jerusalem church, by means of an oracle given by revelation to acceptable persons there, were ordered to leave the city before the war began and settle in a town called Perea of Pella. Um, to Pella, those who believed in Christ migrated from Jerusalem as if 
holy men had uttered, utterly abandoned the royal metropolis of the Jews and the entire Jewish land. The judgment of God at last overtook them for their abominable crimes against Christ and His apostles, completely blotting out that wicked generation from among men. And you can read Roman, you can read Jewish, you can read Christian history. What you, what you will find or be pressed to find is, is any Christian that died in that three and a half years. And you won't find any history, as far as I can tell, um, that, that, that will argue that there was any portion, if, or, or many, if any portion of Christians that died where you can account for 1.1 million Jews dying in the three and a half year period, that these men, that the disciples, according to an oracle, which may have very, very well been Christ's words, heeded His words and ran for the hills and found refuge in a place called Pella, um, in a mountainous region in which God preserved them from the judgment and the wrath and that came upon um, this nation because of their utter rebellion. And that's what we see. We see, um, we see instruction, particularly geographically, historically, unto the nation of Israel. He says, go on. Let them run to the mountains. There's this dire command because of this distinct sign. When you see it, you run for the mountains. And that's historically exactly what they did. And then specific instructions. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why the instructions? Just this urgent need for you to get out. Housetops. Jewish housetops were flat roof structures such that, that if someone was on top of the house just doing whatever they do, um, they, could have, they could have escaped by running across other housetops um, in the nation of, of, of Israel. Working men would have to get by, he says, on the clothes that they have on. Don't even go in. When you see um, the, 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 the nation being surrounded by the armies of Rome, um, you, you run. You don't go in and you don't get things. You, you take it to the hills. You take it to the hills. Nursing mothers, pregnant women are not in the prime state for a hasty escape. The joy of motherhood at that time would be turned into a pitiful handicap. Um, why? Because um, to go that quick and to carry your children or to nurse along the way um, would have been um, extremely difficult. Winter, would, you're to pray that it doesn't happen in winter on a Sabbath. Why? Because, it's, because you need to go. And what would have happened in winter would have brought harsh weather, weather, muddy roads, cold temperature that would slow down one's journey and make high mountain highways almost unbearable and untenable to, to walk on or to travel. They were to pray that it wasn't to happen on a Sabbath. Why? Because travel would have been practically impossible in the Jewish state. The gates of the city would have been closed. It would have been difficult to obtain other provisions. They wouldn't have got any help from the Jewish people. And uh, buying and selling wouldn't have been an option. It would have been almost impossible. Thus, you're to pray that the environment is in such a state um, that, um, that, that benefits the removal of yourself. Um, why? Because when they gather around you and they fortify you in, there's no getting out. And that's the picture. Um, that's the picture. So you see a, um, a distinct, a definitive sign. You see a dire command, and then you see a distinct time in verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as the world, such as not been since the beginning of the worlds until this time, nor shall there 
ever be. I'm convinced that the great tribulation of Matthew, also called the, the days of vengeance in Luke, which is a direct reference to, um, to Leviticus chapter 26 um, regarding the covenant relationship with Israel. Um, Moses writes that the days of vengeance will come. Luke is quoting that. And that the days of affliction in Mark are the same event. That it's this period, this three and a half year period, which is exactly how long the war lasted um, among among Rome and the Jewish people from 66 A.D. Um, to 70. That this great tribulation um, was suffered by the Jewish people, um, which ended in utter destruction and the ending of sacrifices um, even up to this day. The sacrifices have not been reinstated. Um, that there will be a time of unprecedented suffering is what he's arguing. Nor will there ever be again. Again, Josephus reckons that there's about 1.1 million Jews that died. And you say, well, that doesn't seem quite as bad as even the Holocaust. Um, if you read Josephus and other historical accounts, you might just change your, your tune. There's a man by the name of Farrar who wrote a, a, a lengthy volume on the early days of Christianity. Um, he, he comes out of the um, 1800s in the London area. And this is a lengthy quote, but I want to give you a, kind of an idea of what happened during that three and a half year period. He writes this, or particularly even in um, 70 AD when the final destruction happened. He writes, in April of AD 70, Titus, with a, fourth of, with a force of 80,000 legionnaires and auxiliaries, pitched his camp in Scopus to the north of the city. Besides the 2,400 trained Jewish warriors who defended the walls, the city was thronged with an incredible number of Passover pilgrims and of fugitives from other parts of Judea. Feats of heroic valor were performed on both sides, and the skill of the besiegers was often checked by almost insane fury of the besieged talking about the Jews. It was a war. Fanatically relying on the visible manifestation of Jehovah, while they were insulted every other offer of terms, while they were insulted, they insult every offer of terms. At last, Titus drew a line of circumvallation around the doomed city for about five months, began to crucify all the deserters who fled to them, fled to him. There was no man during a period of time that was allowed to surrender. The incidents of famine which then fell on the besieged are among the most horrible in human literature. The corpses, the corpses bred a pestilence. Whole houses were filled with unburied families of the dead. Mothers slew and devoured their own children. Hunger, rage, and despair and madness seized the city. It became a cage of furious madmen, a city howling of wild beasts and of cannibals. A hell, he says. For the first time for five centuries of, on July 17th, A.D. 70, the daily sacrifices of the temple ceased for want of priests to offer them. Disease and slaughter ruthlessly accomplished their work. At last, amid shrieks and flames and suicide massacre, the temple was taken and reduced to ashes. The great altar of sacrifice was heaped with the slain. The courts of the temple swam with blood. Six thousand miserable women and children sank with a cry, a wild cry of terror amid the blazing ruins of the cloisters. Romans adored the insignia of their legions on the place where the holiest had stood. As soon as they became master of the upper city, they only ceased to slay when they were too weary to slay any longer. According to Josephus, it had been the earnest desire of Titus to preserve the temple, but his commands were disobeyed by his soldiers in the fury of the struggle. According to Severus, on the other hand, who is probably quoting the very words of Tacitus, Titus formed the deliberate purpose to destroy Christianity and Judaism both in one blow, believing that if Jewish root were torn up from the Christian branch would soon perish. The tallest and most beautiful youths were reserved to the conqueror's triumph. 
Of those above 17 years of age, multitudes were doomed to the work of chains in Egyptian mines. Others were sent to presence as to various towns to be slain by wild beasts or gladiators or by each other's swords in the provincial amphitheaters. The young of both sexes were sold to slaves. Even during the days of these arrangements were being made, 11,000 perished for want of food. Some because their guards would not give it to them, others because they would not accept it. Josephus reckons that a number of captains taken uh, by the war at 97,000 and a number of those who perished, 1.1 million. The numbers who perished in the whole war are reckoned at an awful total of 1.3 million people. And the number of the prisoners, 100,000. But even these estimates do not include all the items and many skirmishes and battles, nor do they take into account the multitudes who throughout the country perished of misery, famine, and disease. And it may be well said that the nation seemed to be given itself to a rendezvous of extermination. 2,000 putrefying bodies were found even in the subterranean vaults of the city. Touring the siege, all the trees of the environs had been cut down, and hence the whole appearance of the place with its charred and blood-stained ruins was so completely altered. Um, that one of that, that one who was suddenly brought to it would not, we are told, have recognized what it or where it was. And yet the site had been so apparently impregnable with its massive and unqualified fortifications that Titus freely declared that he saw in his victory the hand of God. Um, it said that at certain points of times that there was 500 Jewish people being crucified daily and they had to lower the numbers because they ran out of spots and they ran out of crosses. Josephus' closing words on the account says, It is impossible, therefore, to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquities. I shall therefore speak my mind briefly, that neither did any city, other city suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this, even from the beginning of the world. And he's not a Christian. He's not arguing um, to, in support of the text. He was a Jew and a historian who watched it happen who went in oftentimes and pleaded with his brethren to forego um, the destruction. You know, there was more than one account where Titus sent Josephus in, who was a prisoner of war, and had him plead with the Jews that they would surrender on good terms and keep the temple running. He didn't want to destroy it, um, but the Jews would not submit. And they continued to war. And not only did they war, but they warred among themselves. It's interesting, in 67 to 60 AD, um, there was a reprieve from war. Temporary, temporarily, they ran back to Rome because their, their emperor Nero had died. Um, and it gave, it gave relief for a period of time. And you would think at that moment that, that the Jewish people, the nation, would gather together and reinforce and, and, and be ready to go to war when they came back, but they weren't. Within that time, factions had grown, three or four different ones, to where they were destroying one another. Uh, of that 1.1 million, there's a great portion of it in which the tens of thousands were killed by their own people. Um, they were poisoning each other's wells. They were, they were destroying each other's cornfields and their own, their own uh, silos. And that what you saw within the nation of Israel was just this animosity and hostility towards one another that had never been precedented before. Um, even within the Old Testament, and even to this day, it was a hatred for one another um, in which they killed themselves. Josephus records that there was enough corn there um, that they would have been safe without famine in their land for a number of years. But because of their own hatred for one another and their own um, uh, determination um, to destroy one another and take the temple for themselves, multiple men, um, essentially, they lost the battle as they bled out internally. That there was a, a time in which, and you think, oh, that's bad. Um, I'm not going to read the worst. That this was a time in which the nation of Israel had never seen before. 
and I don't believe has seen to this day. You may argue against that, and maybe that's true. Maybe there is worse things to come. Maybe it is the end of time, but at the same time, um, it seems somewhat, um, it seems somewhat uh, not, not need to be said if, you know, if it's at the end of the world that, 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 um, that, that he say that nothing happened previous to the, nor nothing will happen after. Um, of course nothing will happen after. You know, that, that's that bad if it is the end of the age or the entire end of the world. And I think he's speaking about 70 A.D. He may also be using hyperbole here. What you'll find is in places like Exodus and, and, the, and the other um, prophets, um, which we almost got to this morning, didn't we, in, uh, in Exodus chapter number 10. But in Exodus chapter number 11, you find the 10th plague um, that, is, um, that is meted out upon the nation of Israel because of their disobedience. And in chapter 11, verse number 6, you read these words, "...then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before." nor shall be like it again. Now, was God lying? Was Jesus lying? Was Moses lying? Or was He using a literary device and hyperbole to speak of the greatness of the sufferings and the hardships that these people would um, endure? And that's not the only one. Because if, if Moses is right, then this can't be the greatest cry. And you would almost imagine that this should be a greater cry than even the final plague of Moses. What you'll find is that terminology is used a number of times throughout the Old Covenant and the New Covenant um, to, to, to argue for a, a time in which the, the, there will be a tremendous amount of hardship. And that's exactly what you see. Although I may believe that it was a time in which the world has never seen before and will never see again, even on a theological level, um, that the Old Covenant is, is destroyed. The sacrifices have ceased. The Old Covenant is null and void. And the New Covenant comes in such that it is established until the fullness of days, until the end of the age and the second coming um, of Christ. And then we go on within this distinct time. And he continues to elaborate on how distinct it is. And he says in verse 22, unless those days were short, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. What he says, he says, those days could have been so bad that nobody survived. But God cuts it short by His sovereign grace. Josephus says, that Jewish historian, I suppose that had the Romans made any longer delay in coming against these villains, the city would have either been swallowed up by the ground, opening to them, or been overflowed by water, or else been destroyed by such thunder as the country of Sodom perished by. For it had been brought forth a generation of men much more atheistical than those who had suffered such punishments as even Sodom. For by their madness, it was all the people came. To, by their madness, it was all the people came to be destroyed. What he argues is, is that, that had there not been reprieve, there would be no Jews today. But God, by His sovereign grace over those days and His sovereign um, hand and providence, um, for the sake of His people, um, stays the hand of Rome in some sense and in Judea. And then He says, if anyone comes and says to you, look, here's the Christ and there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if even possible, even the elect. And what you see, and we read several weeks ago, so I'm not going to reiterate, is that during times of crisis, what you'll find are messiahs in multiplicity, plurality. And that's exactly what you saw in this time. Even as um, the Rome is taking and seizing the temple and coming in, there are men um, reported that are standing up and deceiving the people, saying that God will deliver you. And Josephus says it was a heinous crime because they 
um, sealed the burial tomb in some sense for those men as they had faith that God would deliver them, yet He wouldn't because of Leviticus chapter 26 um, and the promises that He made there. Josephus records so many uh, accounts of imposters coming along saying, God will deliver you. God will deliver you. It's reminiscent of Jeremiah. Um, They they yell peace, peace when there was no peace. They totally rejected God's word and and, and they continued on in their abominations and in places like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And there was these false prophets that rose up and said, he's coming, he's coming. I mean, let's go out into the fields and let's go out into the the inner rooms and I'll tell you about it. We'll have a Bible study. Um, And it led to their death and their doom and they did not run because of it. That these men are wicked and heinous men who solidify the death of, of, of th- hundreds of thousands. Um, this, is no, um, this is no minor sin on their part. They are, they are, they are, they are the Matthew 23 woe are, uh, men of condemnation who, who, who not only will not go into the kingdom, but they will not allow others to. That they are the blind leading the blind and they shut up the kingdom of God to others. Thus, there would be a greater condemnation um, upon these men that he, he argues. And there were men that, 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 that came up in that day and did that very thing and contributed to the demise of the nation of Israel and the temple. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. They're going to come and they're going to argue for signs and they're going to do this and that. Don't believe them. Why? Because for as the, the, the lightning comes, verse 27, from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And given the position that I take, there's going to be some that will actually disagree with me on this as well. And I'm fine with people disagreeing with me. I usually take the least popular position. That's fine. Um, but there are those who will... Um, and I, and I, maybe at one time I believed that the coming here, verse 27, was actually arguing for the coming in judgment. But I don't believe that that's actually what he's saying here. I think that what he's arguing here is that uh, you see that term four? You know what that term four is? Um, it's not a demonstrative pronoun. It's an uh, explanatory conjunction. I know that's exactly what you were thinking. Um, it's explaining the previous verse is all. There's a, it's almost a therefore or because of or it's, it's, for, it's, it's arguing something in connection to the previous. Don't listen to them. They're going to say, come into the desert, come into the inner rooms. Don't believe them. Why? Because when He comes, I'm going to argue that this is a verse actually arguing for the second coming of Christ, that when He comes, He'll come as lightning comes um, as the east, uh, from the east and flashes into the west. It'll become like he's going to argue here in the coming verses um, later in the passage that when the coming of Christ comes, there will be no signs accompanying it. And they will be as in the days of Noah, just eating and drinking and carrying on. That there will come, there will be no preparation, so be ready. Whereas in this period of time, it seems like there is this growing hostility and this, this, this growing crescendo, the culmination in which, which um, the depravity will become so great and the signs are given um, such that it will be able to, 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 to prophesy um, the coming destruction. And that's why you're to leave, because you know it's coming. You know it's coming. Um, but, but when Christ comes in the fullness of His second coming, um, don't believe those men. Why? Because when He comes, you won't need a sign. He's going to come like the lightning out of the east. And so, so therefore, later on, be ye ready. Be ye ready. One writer writes this, The time of the siege and capture of the city will be characterized by claims and counterclaims by those who pretend a messianic role. But the coming of the Son of Man will need no such claims or proof. Everyone will see and recognize it. 
He is thus setting His coming and the end of the age by the way decisively apart from the coming and the destruction of Jerusalem. Therefore, there will be false Christs. Don't believe them. Why? Because when the Son of Man comes, it will be indisputable. There will be sudden illumination and every man will stand before God. And then he says kind of a strange uh, phrase, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So what does that mean? Your guess is as good as mine. I'm just kidding. i got a couple options. Um, what, I, what I think he means by that, there's two options. Um, you may actually have a translation that, 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 that translates the term eagles there, right? Eagles. Um, that actually is a, the same term is often used with vultures um, throughout the Scriptures. Um, what he may be saying is, is that the Roman legion, uh, number one, the Roman legion, uh, their emblem was an eagle. That when their standards were placed in the temple or over the temple or a statue, um, it, was, it, was a, it was an eagle. So he may be arguing that, that when this thing happens, they will place their images in the temple and it might be an eagle. And actually in Deuteronomy, I think it's 28, or Leviticus 26, one of them actually argues that the eagles will consume them. So very may will be a, 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 a quote of that or emblemizing that very act of Rome coming in, seizing the temple, utterly destroying it, bringing it low, not one stone left upon another, and that it is symbolized, it is, it is symbolized by the eagle taking um, precedence, Rome taking authority, Titus being imperator at that, point, at that moment and being declared victory. It may also be saying in coalition with verse number 27 that, um, that it's going to be that when the, when the coming of Christ comes, and it's going to be like lightning coming out of the, out of the sky, it's going to be undeniable, or it's going to be as undeniable as when vultures swarm over a carcass. I mean, how many of you ever see vultures swarming over? You know what's happening, right? You know it's there. You know there's a dead body there. I mean, it may be speaking of the nation of Israel and their death and vultures um, uh, coming, or vultures circling at thus the destruction. It may also be referencing the coming of Christ and that it will be known. by Just like vultures, you know something's dead when vultures are... Are, um, are circling the carcass. Um, it may also be that vultures are circling the carcass of the nation of Israel because of their utter disobedience. And again, I know that's a lot. Um, but I know that many of you don't come from that particular perspective. And there was a desire for me to represent it faithfully and to argue it persuasively, but at the same time, not to, to over, overwhelm you. Maybe I did, and if I did, I apologize um, so what's the point of all this who cares right I mean I don't know how many people I've heard reject this position because if that's the case and it already happened there may be something coming in the future again a double fulfillment that is a paradigm just like with Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 AD this is a paradigm or a pattern and you actually see that three or four other times in history as well it may very well be something in the future I don't have the authority to make that determination but if it comes I'll submit amen to anything that the Lord brings but at the same time Paul argues in uh, first or second I think it's first Corinthians chapter number 10 that these things are given for our example you know one thing I asked you to do at the beginning was not to divorce yourself from the actual scene. I want you to get it in your mind now. The nation of Israel for three and a half years in utter desolation, fighting for their lives, destroying one another. Rome comes in. Some of the most unthinkable things that you could ever encounter in your own mind happen within this nation. And as I'm studying for this, 
And as I'm preaching this, all I can hear is Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 37, crying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I would have gathered you like a chick, or like I like gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. To read testimonies of men like Josephus, who pleads for repentance on the words of Titus. Titus sends him in on more than one account. And it literally says that with tears, he says things like, uh, speaking of the Jews whom, whom God hath condemned, he says. And who is here that does not know that the writings of the ancient prophets contain in them? Don't you know what the Word of God says? He goes in to this city. And particularly that oracle which is now, just now going to be fulfilled upon this miserable city. For they foretold that this city should be taken when somebody shall begin the slaughter of his own countrymen. And are not both the city and the entire temple now full of dead bodies of your countrymen? This is Josephus pleading with his people. Again, not a believer but a lover of the Jewish state and the nation of Israel. And Titus sends him in um, to, to, to plead with them to repent and to submit on good terms that they may not be destroyed. And he says, does not this what the Word of God teach us? Is there not enough dead bodies around here? It is God therefore, he says, it is God Himself who is bringing on this fire to purge that city and temple by means of the Romans and is going to pluck up this city which is full of your pollutions. And he goes on to say, as Josephus spoke these words with groans and tears in his eyes, his voice was intercepted by sobs. That's all I can hear. The weeping and the tears and the crying and this didn't have to happen. You know? Jesus almost in tears in many places and in particularly Matthew 23 says, how often I would have gathered you. Like I was there for 33 years, for three to three and a half years He preaches to these people. Like He lays with them. He, he serves them. He, he does miracles in front of them. Like it's the face of God. John says we handled Him. You know? Like Judas was with him. Like he kisses the face of God. And because of his own sin and he won't repent, he falls headlong into hell. And like this may be true of them, but this is also true of us. And this is an example for us. You know? Like this, is, this was recorded for our example. That the horrors of the fall of Jerusalem may very well form a paradigm of a coming day in which God will judge all the nations. Just as God judged that apostate Christ-rejecting city in 70 AD, it's a down payment and a reminder and a promise that He will bring the fullness of His wrath and judgment on this apostate Christ-rejecting world. America is not much different and the world is not much different and you as a family or you as an individual is not much different. I thought this week about us as a church or me as a family. I thought about that phrase. I know it's not particularly, primarily applicable to me. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I would have you know, gathered you together, your children together as a hen gathers your chicks, but you would not. And I thought about our fathers in the church. I thought about me as a father. How that may be the, a paradigm and a quote that I hear throughout the ages. You know? Or that we, or you, or that the world may hear throughout the ages. Those that were nestled within the church. Those that had received the Word of God. Those who had the oracles. Those who had laid next to Christ as maybe a Judas did. Can you imagine that, that, that through all throughout eternity, that, that, that He'll feel the kiss upon His lips of the very Son of God whom He, whom he sold to be crucified? 
and how we will hear the whole host of sermons or that people may hear the whole host of sermons all throughout eternity of Christ pleading with the people nestled in pews, you know, somewhat reading the Word of God and how He may even say, how often I would have gathered, gathered your children. But you would not. Men, you would not lead. Men, you would not disciple. Men, you would not be faithful. Men, you would not. And how, how there are men all throughout our land, throughout the ages, and maybe some of us who are, who are not only children of hell, but making our children double children of hell. Because of our own disobedience and our own lack of care for our own soul, thus it leads to the lack of care, and we are not we are not uh, we are not exempt from that condemnation. You may think, you know, I'm not responsible for my children, I'm not responsible for my church, I'm not responsible for others. I am my own man. But what you find all throughout Scripture and through life is that sin travels as a result of our lack as a result of our utter disobedience. Can you imagine all the children, all the women, all the people that died because, because they would not? They would not. And you read of that. And you think, man, God was, he was a little severe, wasn't He? He's not severe. That's God. You read Psalm 109, which is one of the, 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 the strongest, what we call them precatory psalms, or psalms of condemnation. One thing is clear, that the enemies of God deserve everything that they give. In the events surrounding the Jewish wars, there was that Christ-rejecting people that had cried for the blood of Messiah. And for Pilate in Matthew 27, they crucify Him. And Pilate washes his hands and he says, it's not on me. And they say, it'll be on us and our children. And they sealed their fate that day. It's not because He wasn't there. It wasn't because He wasn't pleading. It wasn't because He wasn't gracious. It wasn't because He wasn't kind. For, for, for years and for decades and for centuries, He pled with that people. And today, He pleads with you. What a frightening prospect. They reject Christ and not believe His words leaves only one final prospect. A day of vengeance and utter desolation because of their abomination. They're profaning and offending a holy God. Whether it was that generation 2,000 years ago or it's our generation, we all stand accountable to God. And that's just a small reminder, a down payment, a pattern that's set forth. And if you thought that, if you thought today was bad, the judgment to come is will make that look like child's play. The destruction of the temple was an awful exhibition of God's judgment. We also learned that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can protect us from the wrath to come. God protects His people through judgment. Isn't that what we saw in the text? I'm not saying He always does that. That was a unique period. I'm not saying that there won't be any persecution, trial, or tribulation. You actually find in the previous portion that's exactly what happens. They're persecuted beyond measure um, as they do not bow to Caesar um, and bow to Christ. But at the same time, you see just this, this beautiful exhibition of God's grace upon His people as He removes them um, from the final wrath of the Old Covenant and seals them in the new. And while trial and tribulation may come, they will never finally and fully be lost. And they will never endure the wrath of God. They may be persecuted. They may, be, um, they may receive trials and they may receive tribulation. But listen, if you're a child of God today, you will never endure the wrath of God. You will never receive His judgment. Not once. Not once. You may be disciplined. You may be corrected. 
You may receive a heavy hand like a father to a child, but you will never be judged. You will never receive the wrath of God. Why? Because it was poured out on His Son just 37 or so years prior to this. And anyone found in Christ does not receive the judgment that His Son endured. And that you today, that if you'll come to Christ by faith and repentance, if you'll heed His warning, um, Damon, Damon, you know, um, how often I would have, if you will, if you will um, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, that you can take it to the bank, that He will, that He is meek and lowly, and that He will receive you. And the wrath of God will be 100% totally absent from your life in an ultimate sense. You may be present and see it among the others, but that's why you can put your head up and you can hold it high and you can, you can live for the cause of Christ in the midst of it because you know you have a Father in heaven um, who will not lose you. you will, he will, the love of God will never separate you um, from Him. No height, no depth, no Roman, no, no Syrian, no, not any person in this world, no angel, no demon could ever separate you from the love of God. That God protects His people through judgment. He's mindful of His children in the midst of judgment. He, he gives them His Word to guide and protect them. And that's the nature of the new covenant. This covenant cannot be broke. Old Testament Jerusalem and Israel broke the covenant and heeded the judgment. Under a new covenant, Christ gives His own blood and secures the end of that covenant. Um, thus, it can never be broken because He'll never break it. He does it in spite of you. He does it in spite of me. He does it in spite of our sins. He does it in spite of all these things. And He secures us until that great day. That's the relevance. What covenant are you under? Old or new? Old or new? Yeah. Matthew 23. Just reigns in my ears. And thus I leave it to you. But again, if you're a Christian this morning, then take utter delight in the fact that your Savior, um, your Savior loves you more than we'll ever be able to exhaust in this land or this life. And we'll be spending the rest of eternity plumbing the depths of the love of Christ, the power and the glory and majesty of our Savior who endured the wrath so that we don't have to. I pray that that's you this morning. And if not, I pray I stand in a long line of faithful men throughout the ages who were not and will not be remembered. Um, but Christ will, as they pleaded with you and with their people to trust Him today and not perish. Believe on Him today, church. Believe on Him. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the privilege it is just to revel in the glories of Christ. What a heavy sermon. If it's not even... Maybe I'm wrong. But if I am, then this is yet to come. And in a sense, I'm not wrong. But the great tragedy of all human history, Lord, it seems to be that we don't love You So help us. Help us to love you. Help us to long for you. Help us to fight for you. Help us to live for you. Help us to die for you. And live forevermore. Give us, Father, a, a glimpse of the great glories of Christ such that 
Uh, we would sell everything for the joy of the pearl that's been buried in the field. Let us sell it all. Help us not to cling, Father, to the, the frivolity and the foolishness of the world. But Lord, help us to have faith and to be bold and to be courageous and to, to be loving and to be gracious, Father, and to have resolve and such that we'll stand in an hour when most men and women won't stand. Not to be elevated and escalated to any position of power or authority or, or grandeur, Father. But that we would be labeled fools for Christ and quickly forgotten. Yet as a church, Father, the gates of hell will never prevail against it because of those who are faithful and continue to pray and um, to proclaim your gospel, Father, throughout the ages, and that you'll continue just to bring your sheep into your fold and help us, Father, when they get here to love them like you loved us, to be patient and long-suffering and gracious, Father, to be instructive and to be um, and to be father and mother-like. Father, I am so encouraged by the text. I know I'm somewhat discouraged in many ways as the weight of it, Father, just rests upon our souls and minds. But at the same time, Father, what love you have for your own. What care you have for yours. Even in this hour to keep us <coughs> When on most days, Father, we would abandon you. Yet your love preserves us. So, Father, help us to revel in your glory this morning. I'm in mean, the fact that your Son and your Spirit, Father, are exactly what we need. So help us to lean on Christ this morning, Father, for his sake and his sake alone and do a work in this day which we cannot comprehend. Let us be easily and quickly forgotten. But Christ, may they never forget Him because of our lives. May we live in such a way that we may be forgotten, but He won't. Whether they believe or not, let them know that this church, that this young man, this young lady loved their God in life even to death. Let that be our motto. Let that be our song. In Jesus' name, amen.